Good morning, everyone. Good to be with you. My name is Luke, one of the pastors here. Hey, it's an exciting weekend. Yesterday was Surf Fest. Uh, many of you probably participated in that. Yeah, it was a good day. For those of you who don't know, Surf Fest is a day when literally thousands of people from churches all over the area partner together to serve in, in a lot of different ways in our community. We got some pictures, I think, scrolling on the screen, give you a little taste of what that's like. Um, young and old alike were joining together. A lot of work was done, which of course is great, an impact was made. And, but more than just the work, there's some relationships that were formed, friendships across churches and denominations. I think all of us know that churches divide for lots of different reasons, but surface is a way for us to come together, to be united, and, and I think have the kind of presence and the kind of influence that God would want us to have right here in this place that we all live, we all love, and we just want to show that love, to be living proof of a loving God. And we're able to do that through surface. So we're praising God for the impact there and um, what's been started through surface. Well, we today we're in this thing called disillusioned. You know that. We're doing it because we want to be able to see clearly, particularly when it comes to matters of faith or who God is or what Jesus is like or what the church is all about. If, if there are some illusions that have been tricking our eyes when we look at those things, well, then we want to be disillusioned so that we can see things as they are, so that we can see what we need to see and know what we need to know about those things. I mean, none of us wants to build our life or stake our faith on an illusion. So we've got to do some work to really see things as they are. And that's what we've been doing in this series. We've been looking at a number of different illusions. So we've got some uh, posted on the wall at all of our campuses. There are these big posters that when you look at them, it's actually quite hard to see what's really going on. Like there's this one. This is my favorite one. Uh, now, because of the way the squares are arranged there... It's almost impossible to believe that all the horizontal lines in that picture are parallel to one another. You're going, no, they're not. Those lines are going at all different angles. They're bent. They're crooked, curving all over the place. That's that's the way it seems. And, And you couldn't blame anyone for believing that when they looked at that picture. Now, there's something similar to be observed about the church. And what I mean is that when you look at the church today, or that when you look at a number of Christians who make up the church, because of the ways that we've arranged ourselves, because of how we've positioned ourselves and the ways we've behaved and the things that we've said, you couldn't blame anyone for looking at us and thinking to themselves, they're a little crooked. They're judgmental and exclusive. They're too political. They're anti-science. They're anti-gay. That's what a lot of people see when they look at the church. Unfortunately, those claims have some merit. We're acknowledging that in this series, knowing that that the behaviors and teachings of Christians have led all of us to believe illusions about who Christ truly is and about the true calling of anyone who calls themselves by the name Christian. Us Christians have often presented ourselves to the world in a way that doesn't look like Christ. And that's led to a lot of illusions about the church, about Christ, about God that need to be dispelled. And so that's what we're going to attempt to do today as we look at this popular claim that the church, or Christians, are anti-science. Now, I know that requires some thinking, right? This science stuff. I know, this, this whole series is a little bit more intellectual. 
Last week we were talking about politics and now science, which probably brings different initial reactions for different ones of us. There, there are seventh graders in the room for whom science is a class on your schedule. It's a textbook in your bag. I remember my seventh grade science teacher, Mr. Munson, and he was so boring. I could still hear his nasally monotone voice, and I didn't like science. Now, 10th grade was a little better. We got to dissect cats, which was cool. It's about the only thing that cats are good for. Um, we, We studied the cat thoroughly and found no compelling evidence for why someone would want to own or care for a cat ever. I just don't know. Yeah, now you know why Ben hired me here. So, <laughs> so anyway, science, for some of us, it's, it's a subject in school. Right? Maybe it's fresh or maybe it's something you know, long forgotten and we may not be all that interested in it. Or per- perhaps we're a little uncomfortable talking about science. We, we don't feel like we're smart enough or it confuses us or it just bores us. Or... On the other hand, there are plenty of others of us for whom science is your life. It's your livelihood. It lights you up. Talking about it makes you happier than a camel on hump day. You... You're, uh, you work at APG blowing stuff up, or you're building bridges. <laughs> you're paleontologist digging in the dirt. Oh, si- silence on that one? No? Okay. Maybe you're Donna Hopkins. You're doing research to cure diseases, right? You speak the language. You re- remember all those formulas that the rest of us forgot. You're the person boring the rest of us at parties, because that's all you talk about. So we're, we're all over the map when it comes to science. Maybe you're somewhere in the middle of, of the extremes. But whether you like science or excel at science or you uh, feel equipped to have scientific discussions or talk about the interplay between science and faith, let's all give ourselves to the conversation today. After all, Jesus said to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And this is a way that we can do that today. So to sharpen a little bit the issue that's at hand, I'd say that what we're examining are the perspectives that would assume if I give my life to Jesus, if I buy into the church thing or the God thing, well then I have to be hesitant to explore science. Or I have to reject the conclusions that are being drawn by modern science. For example, with regard to the origins of life. Or someone might think, I can't possibly believe what the Bible says, like about miracles or about creation, for example, and affirm the legitimacy of what science tells me about the way that world works or how it came into existence. Are those perspectives accurate or are they illusions? A lot of us have been led to believe that that's the way it is. You've got to sort of make a choice, faith or science. You've got to pick a side, creation versus evolution. That, that dichotomy It plays itself out in a number of different ways. Here's one of them, this scene from a show called The Big Bang Theory. Go ahead and take a look. Sheldon! What are they doing here? We came to apologize. Again. And bring you home. So why don't you pack up your stuff and we'll head back? No. This is my home now. Thanks to you, my career is over. And I will spend the rest of my life here in Texas trying to teach evolution to creationists. You watch your mouth, Shelley. Everyone's entitled to their opinion. Evolution isn't an opinion, it's fact. And that is your opinion. I forgive you, let's go home. (laughs) Don't tell me prayer doesn't work. 
So there you have it. Science and Christianity seem to be squaring off. Mother and son going toe-to-toe, one committed to their faith, one committed to science, neither of them able to coexist with the other one under the same roof. That's the way it is. You know, you see that battle taking place in other arenas too. Probably we're familiar with the Christian fish, the, the Jesus fish. You see it on the backs of cars a lot. Well, well, then what someone did is they wanted to take a shot at Christians, and so they produced the Darwin fish. And you can see it's evolved a little bit. It grew some legs. Ha ha. Okay. But they took it a step further, and sometimes you'll see this kind of thing. It's the Darwin fish eating the Jesus fish. Which, come on, that's kind of a sucker punch right there. I mean, who would do something like that? Well, I'll tell you who. The Christians were not to be outdone. They were ready with a retort. It's very creative. Here it is. It's the Jesus fish eating the Darwin fish, which is sadly ironic because that is a picture of championing essentially survival of the fittest, which was part of Darwin's science. So just brilliant, right? So no wonder people witnessing these bumper wars, no surprise they're disillusioned with Christianity. We're making fools of ourselves, pretending we're doing something productive for God by maintaining this antagonistic relationship with science, forcing people to take a side. We're in a standoff. In fact, this guy's got to figure it out. You know, there, there it is. That's the situation we've allowed ourselves to be content with. And it's resulted in the illusion that we're looking at today, that if you're going to follow Jesus, then you have to hold a gun to science. Or you shouldn't, you, you shouldn't do it. Or if you're going to do it, you should be very hesitant, be on your guard against how science could lead you astray. So what do we do in light of that? What, what do we think about the relationship between science and faith? Is there any way for them to coexist and integrate in a person's life? Well, first, let's make sure that, that we know what we're talking about when we say science. Science is an approach to studying the world, particularly through observation and experiment. Science is a tool that we can use to discover more about the world in lots of different arenas, but particularly science helps us learn about the material world. In short, science is looking at stuff and figuring out how it works. And I'm trying not to be too technical here, and I don't mean to belittle any of the real scientists in the room, but that's essentially what science is. And we all probably remember learning in school about the scientific method, which again isn't really a technical or complicated thing. It begins with curiosity. You want to find something out. You want to figure it out. Or perhaps you've got a problem that you're trying to address. Maybe you have uh, water in your basement. Why do I have water in my basement? And asking those questions, a question like that, that's how the scientific method begins. So after that, you try to gather as much information as you can. Well, I, I first noticed the problem at this time, and I see there's moisture over here, but not over here. Uh, there's efflorescence on the wall. looks like this may have been a problem in the past. Outside, the, the grade of the yard's kind of sloping in the right way here, but more the wrong way there. The downspout is pouring out water right there. And so you do all this research, and then based on that, you propose a hypothesis, which is a guess about why things are the way that they are. I think that when it rains, that the water, the, the downspout is pouring water out too close to the foundation of the house. And that's why water is leaking into the basement. After that, you conduct an experiment. I know I'm going to extend the downspout out further away from the house and then wait for the next heavy rain to see if that's fixed the problem. Then it rains, experiment is complete, and you check the data. Either the basement is wet or it's dry. 
If it's dry, you could draw the conclusion that you have maybe answered your original question. But of course, you're going to run that experiment again every time it rains and check back to see if your hypothesis holds up. If the basement is wet, well, then you have to go back and make a new hypothesis and go through the process again. And that is how Harry Homeowner, even if he failed science in high school, is how he applies science in his life. And can I just say that that process is an absolutely wonderful and helpful way to learn more about the world and to solve problems and invent new things. Science is a great tool that can be used in all those ways. Not just so that we can keep mold out of our basements, but to cure diseases and build bridges and fly to space and sail the ocean, flush the toilet. That, that process that Harry Homeowner does in his yard, it's the same one that Susie Scientist does in the lab. Or that Jimmy Geologist does out in the field. Or that little Amy Astronomer, who's right now a fifth grader sitting in church, is going to do someday from the moon. Scientists ask questions of the world. They explore it. They touch it, taste it, smell it, examine it, hoping to learn whatever there is to be learned. How did those rock formations happen? How long ago did those plants live? How do cells reproduce? Why are these species thriving while these other ones are not? What factors are affecting the food supply in this region? How does our body chemistry change as we get older? What happens if I release these chemicals into the atmosphere? What are the best ways to prevent disease? What are those shiny things in the sky? How could I convert sunlight into electricity? What planet are women from? (laughs) When will men fully evolve from apes? These are important questions to ask. And it makes me want to ask questions like, why would Christians want to shut themselves off from that process? In response to Jesus, who says, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind, how would it make sense for Christians to disengage their minds from serious study of the world? Why would we want to be anti any of that? For those whose faith leads them to proclaim, along with Psalm 24, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, why would we need to be hesitant to use the tools that God has given us to explore the earth and everything in it? The observation that some Christians are anti-science is not an illusion. But the idea that being a Christian means that you should be anti-science is an illusion. Yes, the debate makes for spicy headlines, I know, but, but the thing we've got to realize today is that this supposed conflict between science and faith, it's artificial. Now, I know it looks a certain way based on what you're seeing, and we're going to talk in a minute about where the real conflict lies, but just let me be clear and say that science is not something that Christians need to shy away from. Scientists in the room, go do great science. Be excellent at it. Use the tools for good. In the same way that Surfest says, take what you got, your time, your energy, your talent, and use it to be of service to the world. Go do that with science. All of those questions that we all wonder about, please, in Jesus' name and for his sake, help us figure out the answers. If you're a young person who who loves science in, in school, great. Go with that. Go do great science. 
We need you to be proficient with those tools. We need your minds engaged on the issues that we face and the ones that we'll face in the future. If there's bad science out there, fix it with good science. That's how you combat bad science. It's not by dismissing science altogether. It's by doing better science. Cure diseases. Prevent diseases. Improve communication. Help the lame walk and the deaf hear. Create new forms of energy. Invent the next must-have technological tool and sell it to Apple for billions of dollars. Go do it. Nobody should feel like they have to check their mind at the door to be part of the church or to follow Jesus. Turn it on. Engage fully in the exploration of the world and of faith and discovering what a relationship with Jesus means. If you came in here wondering, what does the church think about academic studies and the pursuit of science and exploring the world in that way, we think that those pursuits can enrich life and they do not have to be put down in order to accept an invitation to follow Jesus. Now, so if that's the case, if it's true that either-or thinking is not the proper way to think about science and faith, and there isn't a rub between the two, well then, where's the rub? I mean, what's all the hoopla about? What's the issue? I'll say that to my daughter sometimes after uh, she gets dressed. It looks, in my eyes, she looks like she's fine, she's ready to go, but she's like, you know, doing all this. I'm like, what's the issue? It's bothering me, you know. It's rubbing, okay? Where's it rubbing? You try to fix it. So if you, you trying to, you're trying to wear science and faith, and it feels like it's rubbing, where's the rub? Well, in the broader science versus religion conversation, the conflict truly, ri- truly lies in the realm of what we might call worldviews. Okay? The, the clash is at the philosophical level. Hang with me here now. Doing good science and committing yourself to a study of the natural world is different from committing to a belief that the natural world is all there is. Using the tools of science and learning whatever can be known from the scientific method is different from believing that the only way to know something is if it can be learned through science. A person can use the tools of science to gain lots of knowledge about the world. But to go one step further and say that those are the only tools that exist and that anything that might be understood through using a different set of tools has no validity whatsoever well, then that is actually a faith statement. It's a philosophical position. It's a belief that cannot be tested or proven scientifically. And it's sometimes called naturalism or philosophical materialism. Those are worldviews. Ways of understanding reality that say that the only things that are true, the only things that are real, the only things that can be known are things that can be demonstrated through science, except that statement can't be verified through science. So a notion like this, you quickly realize, is in conflict with the Christian worldview, which, while affirming the legitimacy of science to do the things it is meant to do and teach us what it's meant to teach us, would also say that there are things that are true and real and meaningful that are beyond what can be proven scientifically. There is something beyond the natural realm. And to say that, too, is a matter of faith. 
So what's important to see here is that the, the conflict lies, or the conflict results from the faith commitments that have been made, the worldviews that have been adopted. So all of us then have to make the leap of faith so to speak. All of us, we we can study the world and read history and avail ourselves of all the data that's out there. And then at the end of the day, we got to make decisions about what's true and what's real. The Christian and the naturalist both have to do that. But one thing that the Christian would want to say to the naturalist is that there are many areas of life that, that science is insufficient to address. That difficulties arise when we expect too much out of science. You know, in spite of how much science gives us, I think deep down we all know that that science can't account for everything that's needed for a full and flourishing life in all of its dimensions. There are are so many questions that science just can't answer. Like why you fall in love, or why you fell in love with, with that one. It can't identify why you're driven by certain things and inspired by others. That, that, that sense of purpose that compels you to direct your life in a specific way is not best explained scientifically. The impact and the meaning drawn from art and music, that's outside the scientific realm. Science cannot tell us what value to place on human life. It can't define for you what priorities should govern your family. It doesn't answer questions about the nature of free will. And in the strict sense, science is not built for understanding history because it studies the repeatable, and history is unrepeatable. Now, this is one element to note in the discussion about miracles. Okay? So, so when in history a miracle is reported, some kind of disruption in the natural order of things, you know, sometimes it's bogus. But then here in the Bible, there are a number of these miracles reported that claim to be legitimate. Jesus walks on water, he heals a blind man, God provides manna in the desert. And the biblical writers are assigning or claiming that there are supernatural causes for those events. Well, science only accounts for natural causes. And that's fine. It's well equipped to do that. But to expect science to prove that no other causes could possibly exist is to expect too much from science. There are some matters for which science is not the best tool. Even if Harry Homeowner goes to Home Depot and buys the 296-piece ratchet and drill bit set, when it comes time to plant a tree, he's going to need a different set of tools. And when, in life, it's time for us to figure out ultimate matters of purpose and why we exist and how we should live and what's real and what or in whom we should trust, we shouldn't expect science to give us those answers. If we do, then yes, we will be at odds with how Jesus directs us in all of those things. We will be in conflict with the Christian faith and there will be a rub. But it's not because science is bad or wrong or insufficient to do what it's intended to do. It's because we have expected more from science than what it's able to give us. Am I making sense? For a few of you? I feel like like my seventh grade science teacher. (laughs) Next page. Well, another place that we might feel a rub when you're trying to wear science and religion or science and faith together, is where our interpretations of the Bible 
and the conclusions drawn by science seem to be in conflict. We think the Bible says something clear about the way the world works. But science seems to say something clear or or something else clear about the way the world works. And those two things are incompatible with one another. What What do we do when it's rubbing like that? Well, I want to borrow some advice from a good friend of mine and very sharp mathematician and uh, efficient, effective preacher, Ethan Magnus, who would say that when it appears that what the Bible says and what science says are contradicting each other, first, we've got to be patient. If the issue is that there's bad science telling us the wrong things, well, then just let people do more good science. Good scientists are pursuing the truth, and that's what Christians want. So let the scientific process play out. Number two, we've got to trust God. If God is who Christians say that he is, then he's big enough to handle whatever shocking discovery is headlined on the next National Geographic cover. If he's not able to handle that, well, then he's not a God worth following. And number three, where there is tension then we need to enter humbly and carefully and with love into a process of discovering what the Bible is actually trying to teach. Because it could be that our interpretations of it need correcting. In fact, that's happened in a number of ways over the years. Did you know that there was a time when everyone believed that the earth was the center of the universe and the sun orbited around it? Uh, Science of the day seemed to affirm that. The Bible, likewise, seemed to say the same thing. There's that place in in Joshua where he's leading the Israelites into battle against the Amorites. God shows up in this miraculous way. On the day the Lord gave the Amorites over to Israel, Joshua said to the Lord in the presence of the people, Sun, stand still over Gibeon, and moon, stand still. So the sun stood still, or it appeared to do that. So the perspective is then that it's, it's the sun that is moving across. The sky, it's moving around the earth. There's a place David commissioned a song to be sung in First Chronicles, and in it they sing, the world is firmly established. It cannot be moved. And everyone would have had no trouble with the notion that that was, in fact, the best description of reality, that the earth was firm and in place and the heavenly bodies orbited around it. But then, 500 years ago, Nicholas Copernicus proposed a different hypothesis and accompanying data, concluding that the sun was at the center and the earth revolved around it. Then he wasn't doing it to take a shot at the church. He was just following where the science led him, and that's what became evident. Now, we're too late to witness the initial ramifications of this shocking discovery, which, you know, created some unrest for people, no doubt. Uh, Martin Luther, father of the Protestant Reformation, famously criticized Copernicus and encouraged others to dismiss his theories. And people had, you know, a crisis. Here's science teaching something that seems to be, or something in conflict with something the Bible seems to clearly say. Well, let's look, looking back on this, we can apply that advice. First, be patient. You know, if it was bad science, it would have been debunked. Turns out we let the science play out, and now, I mean, none of us has any trouble living in a heliocentric universe. Number two, trust God. Is God threatened by the fact that now we have a better understanding of what he made? No. Could a person decide not to trust God and instead trust their assumptions that nothing exists beyond the, beyond the natural world? Well, yeah, they could. 
But could a person also look at the same scientific discoveries about the universe and about its magnitude and decide to magnify God even more? To say all the more fully with Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of His hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they reveal knowledge. Yes, that's a fair conclusion and a beautiful way that science can enhance faith. Could you, standing on the earth, which of course is hurtling through space, could you look up at the night sky and be even more in awe of God's power when you marvel, along with Psalm 33, that by the word of the Lord the heavens were made, their starry host by the breath of His mouth. Yes, a person could thank God for the Copernican revolution and all the information that we've been able to glean from the far reaches of outer space and then sit back and say with Psalm 8, when I consider your heavens and the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is mankind that you are mindful of them? Who am I that you would care for me? Yes, a person could respond in that way. And then, number three, we humbly revisit our interpretations of biblical texts that seem to be saying that the earth is flat or it's the center of the universe or whatever, and And number one, just be okay with the fact that the biblical writers accepted the science of the day when they were describing the world. What else were they going to do? That's just the terms in which people talked. And number two, we have to refuse to expect more from the Bible than what it's able to give us or what it's intended to give us. It does convey truth. But the truths to which the biblical texts are pointing are not always scientific ones. The purpose of the Bible recounting Joshua's victory in battle over the Amorites is to point out who came through in that battle, namely God. God came through in amazing and unlikely ways in the past, and He will come through again in amazing and unlikely ways in the future. The point of a biblical writer praising God for setting the earth upon its foundations in a culture where everyone just imagined the earth to be flat and sitting on a foundation, isn't to enforce that kind of cosmology per se, but to say who invented the cosmos, namely God. So remember that the next time you think you're not accountable to anyone. Those are the kinds of truth that the Bible is interested in teaching us. And for us to demand that its truth always be given to us in terms that are consistent with modern science is to expect too much from the Bible. It's to demand more of the Bible than what it's able to give or what it's intended to give. In the same way that people misuse science and try to make it do more than what it was equipped to do, sometimes people use the tools of the Scriptures for things It's not equipped to do. And when we do that, yes, there's a rub. There's a conflict. But again, it's not because science is insufficient to lead us to what's true. And it's not because the Scriptures are insufficient to lead us to what's true. And it's not because it's impossible to use both of them to dispel illusions about what we believed about the world and to use them both to find truth wherever it lies. It's because we've used those tools wrong. And that's why each 
side can end up feeling like the other one is anti. And I suspect that as we continue to be patient and trust God and do good science and good, intelligent, biblical interpretation and do it all with love for those who hold different opinions from us, I think that that kind of approach is going to have a healthy influence on the creation versus evolution debate. Kind of all comes back to that, doesn't it? Origins. One thing that's important to know, we can't go through all of this today, but a couple of things to know. And the first one is that there are genuine Christ followers who hold all different perspectives on the creation, evolution, young earth, old earth, continuum. And we should point out that it is possible to be a Christian and affirm some form of evolution. The best science being done right now seems to support evolutionary theories regarding how the world came to exist in its present form. And again, affirming evolutionary science is not the same thing as the philosophical position that assumes evolution to be this all-encompassing theory explaining absolutely everything we think and feel and do as a product of natural selection. That's naturalism, which takes just as much faith to believe as it does to believe in the supernatural. With the Bible as a guide, one can affirm that God created. And gleaning from uh, the results of science, affirm evolution to be the best explanation for the process by, that describes how God created. In fact, just thinking about that, the, uh, a patient process over time that God would do something like that, it isn't necessarily out of step with God's character. God, who the Bible describes in, the way, in terms of saying, with the Lord a day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as a day. God was exceedingly patient, waiting hundreds of years before He rescued His people and brought them out of slavery from Egypt. He sat in silence for 400 years between Old and New Testaments while his people longed for a Messiah, whom he did then send in the form of a baby subject to the natural processes. And now here we are having waited in hope for 2,000 years before Christ returns in glory. So the notion that God created over a long period of time is not necessarily out of step with how God often chooses to interact with the world. And it's not necessarily out of step with several very compelling interpretations of Genesis chapter 1, which of course is the account of creation in the Bible. Now there are several uh, faithful Jesus followers who do believe that God created the earth in six literal 24-hour days, about 10,000 or so years ago. But just, just on biblical grounds, there doesn't seem to be anything about the text that makes it necessary for us to interpret Genesis 1 that way. The sun and the moon to govern the times and days and years, that wasn't created until day 4, for example. So day wouldn't have to necessarily mean 24-hour period. Now, knowing that there are a number of interpretations of Genesis 1 that can be uh, important and meaningful and teach us truth. And without saying that there is one that is the Christian position, let me just say that 
uh, Genesis 1, which is framed in beautiful poetry, it was given to us primarily to reveal who created the world and was not intended to teach scientific truth, but theological truth. So regardless of how we interpret it, we've got to be sure that we're not demanding more from the biblical text than what it's intended to provide us. Let's do good biblical interpretation. And let's do good science. And then let's welcome truth wherever it lies. Now, just because the Bible can't be wielded as a scientific tool doesn't mean it's not a useful tool. It doesn't mean that it can't tell us very important things about all of those questions that we asked earlier, like the value of human life and the priorities that should govern our families and why we exist and who gave us life. It's essential for those things. And it's an essential tool in introducing us to the risen Lord Jesus, which is perhaps the best place for us to land today. I know I didn't say all that you wanted me to about creation and evolution. Uh, We don't have time to do all of that right now in this purpose. I I would say that it is worth pursuing that that study. And if you want to learn more about it, I'd highly recommend that you avail yourself of the resources of the BioLogos Foundation. You can explore their website at biologos.org. They're, they're doing great work. They have a lot of uh, articles and videos that can help us navigate that conversation about origins. Maybe you're having some of those conversations with people that are your neighbors or your, uh, in your workplace and so forth. Uh, they're committed to Christ most importantly. And they're committed to uh, intelligent study of the world through science. And there can be a helpful resource. But look, even though we didn't give it a full treatment, okay, the good news is that we don't have to have the origins of the earth figured out before we can say yes to Jesus. Okay? Amen. Let's establish that. Those origins conversations, interpreting Genesis chapter 1, those are not essentials. Jesus is an essential. Now, that's not to say that Jesus is just a warm feeling in your heart or someone, someone who's not grounded in the real world. Quite the contrary. In fact, one of the striking things about Jesus, one of the striking things about Christianity is that at the core of our faith is an empty tomb. One that could be verified and explored. And there is a Jesus who, by all accounts, was declared dead and then was buried in a tomb and then three days later rose from the grave and appeared in a bodily form. And he said to people, touch me, try me, take a look and see if it's really me, see if I'm legit. You got doubts? Well, of course you do, because as science would tell us, people don't rise from the dead. But bring those doubts to me. Touch me. Try me. Use your mind and all the faculties that you have for discovering what's true and see if I hold up under scrutiny. And I'll just tell you, that data is why I have made the leap of faith that I have. We need to know the center of our story. And we need to know that Jesus is not afraid of our questions or our doubts. He invites us to try Him. And that's what He would say to anyone who's who's skeptical. He he wants you to know your questions, your doubts are welcome here. He wouldn't want you to put your brain in a sack or just believe He's just some spiritual, kind of warm, fuzzy feeling. 
Now he'll stand behind the claim that the heavens declare the glory of God and the skies proclaim the work of his hands and he will invite you to explore those things as much as you can, confident that if you're willing, that study and that process will lead you to an even deeper and fuller and richer understanding of the Creator God. He's not worried about your study of that. The created world is one way that God reveals Himself to us. Jesus Christ is one way that God reveals Himself to us. And the meal that Jesus instituted called communion is another way that God again shows up and reveals Himself to us. We're going to share in that communion meal right now. It's one that Christians have been having together for over 2,000 years. I invite those who are serving communion to go ahead and take your place. This communion meal is a way to, to touch and taste the goodness of God. It's a tangible expression, the bread and the cup, a tangible reminder of God's grace and how Jesus gave up His body and He shed His blood for us. It's a testimony to God's love and we receive it as an invitation today. Come to Jesus today. Take hold of the bread and the cup. Touch, taste. And know that that is telling you that God loves you. Whoever you are, wherever you've been, whatever questions and doubts that you have, know that you are welcome. Know that Jesus is calling you to respond in love. Love for the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Bring all that you are to this meal and discover Jesus as we take communion together. Let's pray. God, we give you thanks for who you are and for your work among us, for the work that you did in Christ on the cross, for giving us and securing for us new life. Thank you that you are a God who, who shows up in history in real ways, that you're not some God who is distant or beyond us. Even though you flung the stars in the sky, you're near to us and you draw near to us in this place. Thank you for uh, revealing yourself through creation. Thank you for what we can learn from you as we discover the work of your hands. God, I ask that you would lead us in our conversations that we're having and uh, the ways we're trying to answer questions and handle doubts that we all have or that those around us have. Let us be full of grace. Let us represent you well. Let us help others see you clearly. We long to see you clearly now, to know you, to touch you, feel you, and be with you in this moment as we share this meal together. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.